This episode of On Location with Jared Cowan is dedicated to director John G. Avildsen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to On Location. Today we are in Highland Park, a neighborhood just to the northeast of downtown L.A., and we're sitting, uh, well, the sun's about to come out, but kind of overcast, which is typical in L.A. at this time of year in June. We are in front of a vacant lot that is adjacent to a set of train tracks used for the Metro Gold Line, which connects downtown to the San Gabriel Valley. And before I introduce today's guest, uh, I'd like to just back up for a moment because I want to provide you with a little bit of context about why we are where we are today. Five years ago, to coincide with the uh, 30th anniversary of The Karate Kid, I wrote an article about the film San Fernando Valley Roots. Uh, the movie is one of my favorite of all time. The movie was directed by John G. Avildsen, who, of course, also directed Rocky. Uh, that article is really what started everything for me dealing with filming locations. Without it, I might never have continued to write about locations, might not have started this podcast, and I might not have started giving film tours. For the next few years, I kept in touch with John Avildsen, interviewing him at multiple times. We would do interviews over the phone, email. One time I met him at Frank Lloyd Wright's and his house in Las Feliz, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and he shared stories with me over pastrami sandwiches at Nate Now's Delicatessen in Beverly Hills. He was always really gracious with his time uh, when I wanted to talk to him about his career. Uh, John passed away in 2017 at the age of 81. From the moment I did the article about the original Karate Kid film, I was looking ahead to its sequels. In 2016, I spoke with John again about the 1986's The Karate Kid Part Two, which filmed between L.A. and Hawaii. I was also thinking about the third installment of the franchise, and I had asked John about it at the time. And he told me that he really had a grand idea for the third one, and some Karate Kid fans probably know this. Um, the backstory of Miyagi Family Karate is that Mr. Miyagi's ancestor from Okinawa was out fishing one day, had too much sake, got drunk on his boat, and woke up in China, which is where he learned the secrets of Miyagi Family Karate and brought it back to Okinawa. Now, John wanted to go back in time hundreds of years and we pick up Miyagi's ancestor arriving on that beach in China. Daniel and Miyagi would actually travel back in time to observe this. John's idea was to have Pat Morita also play Miyagi's ancestor, and that maybe uh, Marty Cove, who played John Kreese, would be like a, like a pirate or something like that. Um, the film had the Chinese government's blessing, uh, and Columbia Pictures thought it was great because at the time Coca-Cola owned a major share in columbia in the studio and it was an opportunity to expand coke's presence in china but at the end of the day the film's producer really just thought the whole thing would be way too expensive and john told me quote we did the third one which is just a bad remake of the first one end quote uh, i had asked john if he thought that in a few years people would want to talk to him about part three and he replied quote um maybe with disgust End quote. But then he laughed and he said, no, some people liked it and I'm glad they did. But I was very disappointed that we didn't go to China and keep notching up the story. Well, The Karate Kid Part 3 was released on June 30th, 1989. And it picks up as Mr. Miyagi and Daniel return to L.A. from Okinawa. Just so you know, this is the bells from the gold line, which we are sitting right next to. Little do they know that Sensei John Kreese of the Cobra Kai Dojo, uh, he's disheveled and down on his luck after losing the All-Valley Karate Championship. 
uh, has made a deal with his Vietnam Army buddy and sleazy toxic waste tycoon Terry Silver. Terry hires karate bad boy Mike Barnes to defeat Daniel in the All-Valley Tournament in an attempt to repopularize Cobra Kai and give Kreese essentially a new lease on life. Uh, in an attempt to continue writing about the Karate Kid films, yeah, we'll let this go by. This is good. I like this. Because this is something you have to deal with when you're shooting. I mean, you know, trains, so... In an attempt to keep writing about The Karate Kid, I pitched an article about the locations from the third film to coincide with its 30th anniversary, but unfortunately nobody picked it up. Um, I was a little bummed, but I completely understand. You know, people don't remember The Karate Kid Part 3 as fondly, if at all, as they do the first two films. The late Roger Ebert, who gave the first film a glowing review, said of Part 3, This material is wearing out its welcome. I have mastered all the lessons of The Karate Kid movies have to teach and all of the surprises they have to spring. I am also intimately familiar with the plot formula so that nothing in this third film comes as the faintest surprise. Perhaps it is time, as Mr. Miyagi might say, to study something else. Um, and Ebert was really right. You know, certainly many of the plot points in part three reflect those in the first films. But I think there's something else going on in The Karate Kid Part Three that's quite a bit darker than the previous two films. The first film is obviously Daniel's story. The second is more Miyagi's. But part three is really about the both of them and a test of their relationship, which begins to really deteriorate when Mr. Miyagi won't train Daniel to defend his title at the All Valley. After all, karate is not for winning plastic metal trophies, says Mr. Miyagi. Then Daniel experiences pain, mental and physical, like he's never felt before when he decides to train with Terry Silver. Ebert did recognize these slight differences from the first and second films. He said, the only fresh element this time is Daniel's brief rebellion when he is disloyal to Mr. Miyagi by accepting the scheming Terry as his coach. I would also add that the film is quite different in terms of its filming locations. Uh, part three still takes place in the valley, and a few of the first film's valley locations make brief appearances, but the film also branched out to a whole other set of locations to complement the film's darker themes. Some of its locations actually have kind of a this patina of urban decay, which I really kind of liked, more so than even Daniel's Reseda apartment building, the South Seas. Uh, my guest today is a veteran location manager who, aside from working on the original Karate Kid film and Karate Kid Part 3, worked on films such as La Bamba, The Grifters, A Few Good Men, and The Last Samurai, just to name really just a few. I'd like to welcome my guest, Richard Davis Jr. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming out to this spot. Now, when we were working, when I was working on my first article on The Karate Kid, that was five years ago, so we've been keeping in touch. We've been in touch. Uh, these past few years. At that point, you had even told me some really great stories about Part 3, and I kind of kept them on the back burner for these last five years. Um, now, before we get into talking about Part 3 specifically, I'm wondering if you might be able to tell me, do you know why, by any chance, you didn't work on Part 2? I can't remember. Uh, either I wasn't available, I might have been on another project, or I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I just uh, I knew they were making it, yeah. and I can't remember now if anybody ever called me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you were working on the first movie, did you get the sense that something special was happening, and did you get that same feeling working on part three? I loved the script for the first movie, and, uh, and also uh, loved the idea of working with John Avelson on what seemed to be, you know, a follow-up to Rocky. It, you know, you did, the script read that way. You felt it. And uh, I was also five years newer at my job uh, at the time, so everything was exciting. Everything was new. And uh, the chance to actually work with the best was one of my, uh, 
one of my ambitions when I got into film and I was working with the best. What was your sense when you started working on part three? Well, the script didn't grab me, and I, I was unaware of the story that you just told about uh, where it was supposed to go and where it didn't go. Uh, I was glad to be back. I was glad to see John again. Um, Bill Cassidy, the uh, original production designer, had passed, and there was another production designer who, with all apologies, I can't remember his name right now, but uh, the art department was uh, was different, and art, the art department is where I sort of work at the beginning of a film. Later on, it goes to production, but... At the beginning, you're looking for locations, you're spending time with the creatives, and this was a new group to me. Um, and so I was meeting new people and, and trying to f- get into the new vision of what things were going to look like. I think you're absolutely right. The feeling of decay was there, whether it was something that uh, the production designer and John Avelson arrived at together, but uh, I realized it when I was scouting that they were looking for something much more run down. That we then we were looking even as run down as uh, as we made the uh, South Seas look in in episode one it wasn't run down like some of the stuff we were looking at for Karate Kid three for the first film do you remember did you try to stay in the valley as much as you could was that was that a goal I mean I know you branched out to John some places. kept us in the valley yeah it was that was his idea and uh, if I came up with something. Uh, that he'd look at and say, yeah, but he says, but I want it, you know, I want it less populated. I want it more like the Valley. He was, you got that point pretty quickly from him. Can you say for part three, did you try to stay there? Or, I mean, like I said, there are quite a few branched out locations in part three. Um, you go from Highland Park, Santa Monica. I, th- I think it was just production design. Had, was looking for I I can't remember what I showed for the the Santa Monica was the promenade over uh, alongside Ocean Avenue over the Palisades and uh, it didn't seem like the right place to me at all but they liked the look of it and that's where we ended up. Why do you think it didn't feel right to you? Why what what was it about? Because what's weird is when I'm watching it, it also doesn't feel like it fits in it with the rest fit, of the. It, it's it's not surrounded by. It, it's at the edge of the world. It's at the ocean. So was the uh, bonsai tree location up in Northern California. It was it was a long way out. John loved that second. Look. I will go back to yeah, that. Yeah, we can I'm talk sure. about that. Yeah. Uh, but no, it 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 didn't seem right. Uh, the other stuff, uh, like the uh, the downstairs club, which we shot at a place that's now called the Vertigo. It's a real hip nightclub. Then it was a rundown old Oddsfellows Hall called the Casa Camino Real, or later they just shortened it to La Casa. And it was still pretty run down, had like lots of rooms, but no real good exterior for a funky club. It took us a while to realize, hey, there's a door on the north end of the building that might actually work because nothing worked. Right next to the freeway, right? It was it's under right, the freeway, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know if you got that feeling watching the movie. I, I can see the freeway pilings, but I, I, again, we, they must have looped all the dialogue because, uh, <laughs> right. because we were under the freeway. <laughs> right, sure. Now, not only was the Valley a character in, well, both movies, it's a character, um, but the production itself was also based in Burbank, right, at the Burbank Studios, is that right? Which was shared yes, by Warner Brothers was, in Columbia, yeah, right, yeah, at the time. Yeah, it's Warner Brothers again, but it was, uh, it was the Burbank Studios and it was Columbia and Warner Brothers. Right. And the, uh, the scenes that were shot there were shot at what they called the ranch, which is still known as the Warner Brothers Ranch. I think it was what we called it then, and uh, because it had space to build a lot of stuff that we needed to build. Right north up Hollywood Way from the main lot. Yeah, it's up Hollywood Way, about a mile from the yeah, studio. Yeah, I love going there. I, unfortunately, they don't give tours of it, but lucky enough, I've been inside to do 
I did one episode of the podcast there. It's a lot of fun to visit. Yeah. I really love going in there. Though part three is still supposed to be in the valley, there we, we talked about there's still there's this quality of it that feels a little more LA in general as opposed to valley specifically. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's look, maybe that's just because I live in the valley and I know that the place we are today is not actually in the valley. But at the end of the day, right, it's about finding the best location for the scene. I mean, you want to maybe stay in your geographic area, but at the end of the day, it's about finding the best place, right? Yes, and and we did look for existing, uh, this turned out to be a stage a set entirely, on, on built on location, the uh, Miyagi's bonsai house. But they were looking for a place that would be across the street from a pottery that had like a funky rundown feeling like they, and we looked all over the valley and, and nothing was very attractive. You know, it wasn't cinematic enough. I mean, it was just pretty blank until you got inside, and then it was just big and blank. So we figure, well, if it's going to be big and blank on the outside and big and blank on the inside, we're going to have to build the whole damn thing anyway. So uh, I knew about this vacant lot and the uh, cute little place across from it. A little previous scouting had done it, and I'd been aware of this lot when it was a hotel, a very rundown old hotel at the edge of the train tracks. And I remember when I, I wanted it, something like that for a location, I thought, oh, God, I know just where that is. I drove out, and it was gone. Uh, the, hotel the hotel was, was gone. gone. So you I were, found out later it had burned down. I don't know when it burned. So you were looking for a hotel. I Not or for this. Not for, not this, for this, but for something else. Yeah, I was looking for a, like a, a funky <laughs> place to be next to a railroad or some, just yeah. some environment, that period, I think, probably. And, uh, and anyway, it stuck with me. I remembered this, so when we started talking about, well, what do we have to build the whole thing? Um, I, I, I sort of felt like that was a bit of failure on my part, but I couldn't find what they were looking for. I don't remember who, whether it was John or the production designer. I think it was the production designer I brought here and said, this would be, you know, this is a spot where we could build. It's got character and it's got a thing across the street, which I foolishly told them I could get for their, uh, for their pottery uh, uh, studio. And in the end, that was a search like no other to find the owner and get him to say yes. There's maybe even a little bit more of a challenge. I don't know. You need to find a location where you can build or film or, or and then eventually, like you said, build the Mr. Miyagi's Little Trees, which is little the name trees, of what his store yeah. was that Daniel leases for him. So you have to find that, but you also have to find a location which has another place across the street, which hopefully you can get into also. John was a master at putting things together that weren't anywhere near close to each other. We did it in the Karate Kid 1. We put uh, the uh, the Mexican restaurant next to the dojo and those places. Chinese were, restaurant. Chinese, Chinese, Chinese restaurant yeah. next to the dojo. And uh, it was um, the original concept had been a Mexican restaurant. But oh, okay. It, we didn't find okay. one. Okay. We found a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> anyway, he put them next to each other, and you can't tell that they're not. So I thought maybe he would do that here, but uh, he liked that building, and uh, and this worked for a build, and this is where we ended up. Uh, there's a great shot in the film when Daniel first goes across the street to the pottery shop, and the camera is actually inside the door of the pottery shop and you see Daniel crossing the entire street so you really get this reality yeah, the sense of reality you see the building across the street you're not cutting to somewhere else so that's really great I think and also too right so you built the shop here production designer designed right. and the art department and construction built it and it probably took 
a week, maybe a little longer. And then you get this added benefit of the train, right? So now there's this extra production value. They're inside the store, and there's these Amtrak trains going yeah, by this in wasn't, the background. Uh, this wasn't the gold line then. This was an Amtrak line. And uh, actually, one day when we were scouting this still, um, a, uh, all of a sudden you look up, and here comes the super chief from, like, the 1960s coming th- through the intersection. I wish we had a camera. Uh, and then when, after it went through with like four or five cars, we realized it was being pushed by a very contemporary switching <laughs> engine. It wasn't under its own power. And I thought, wow, let's see if we, but if, that would have been an anachronism anyway, even at that time. You know, so. so now what's going on? You're obviously, um, or maybe you're not, I don't know, and it's just chance. I mean, are you coordinating? Is someone down there telling you when a train is coming and then they're going to roll a camera or was a lot of that by chance that I think a lot of just it was it. by chance they liked the idea of, but I think we also did did some research on when they were when the trains were going to come by go back uh, how did I do something how long ago but um, I, I think we had two I think we had a schedule and I think we had a spotter a spotter and then sure. uh, because we couldn't very much well wait all day just to see if maybe a train's coming but uh, we could adjust the scenes that were already being shot to the fact that there was going to be a train there in three minutes, you know. What I like about the location, too, is in the couple of wide shots of the building that was built, the actual address of this spot was put on the building. You know what I mean? I like <laughs> well, that. It's it technically 130 <laughs> North Avenue 50. In the, in the movie, it's just 130 Avenue 50. Mm-hmm. But I like that attention to detail. I mean, you could have put anything up there, you know, but they actually put the exact address on the top of the of Maybe the we're building. Something delivered. <laughs> That's true. Good point. Waiting for some know. waiting for some props to get here. You needed some ID for it. I mean, that movie came out thirty years ago. Amazing. I mean, I imagine you. Yeah, out the now. sun's out now. Have you been by this area in the past? Like, do you remember ever coming by here and being like, "Oh, that's where we built the"? Yeah, I've, I've, I know where we did it. I sometimes I drive by just to see it. Uh, do you? Well, if I'm in the area, yeah. You know, I mean, it's amazing that it's just stayed empty. I mean, this whole time. Well, that I guess that this area is starting to pick up, but slowly and basically further north in up by New York Avenue, you know, everything's rented now. Down here, things are not doing so well. So. Someday this will be something. Do you recall at all dealing with whoever owned this and what this was, what it took to get this area? Getting this location, the vacant lot for a build, I don't recall anything other than it was it was pretty easy. Okay. I mean, it was a vacant lot. It wasn't making any money, and here was a chance <laughs> to make money. I made a deal pretty quickly, and we got it. And I think we needed it for about a month, maybe, maybe six weeks, uh, to build, shoot, and strike. Uh, across the street was another story. Yeah, you were telling me that. I can't remember what was in there, but it, I think it was a loft. I think some, some artists were living there. Something was going on in there, but not much. And so they told me who the owner was, and I couldn't find him. Uh, and we did, a, we did a title search, and it was the right owner, and I still couldn't find him. Finally, I tracked him down over in East L.A. I remember Soto Street being part of this. I don't remember <laughs> why. And I went and talked to him, and he wasn't interested. Oh man! <laughs> and I was, so I was here. I was. Uh, I was stuck. I, it took a while. He he I, he came around. We paid him probably a little more money than I had originally wished to pay him. But I think I paid so much less for this that uh, it wasn't uh, for this side of the street that it wasn't uh, that big a deal. And it, it, we we filmed there. We went in, made some changes, and uh, and we, and shot in there. That location was available to us every day we were filming here. Uh, we didn't always shoot over there, but we were able to. 
if you hadn't been able to get the building that was the pottery shop, which is where Robin, Robin Lively's character uh, works in the movie, would this whole thing have fallen apart right here? I don't know. I didn't. It, it, to me, there, I had no alternative. Yeah. I'd, I'd sold this place based on the fact, well, this, will not, this won't be a problem. <laughs> this won't be a problem. <laughs> and uh, I don't know whether we'd even be talking about my job on the Karate Kid 3 if I hadn't gotten that. <laughs> so he said they shot inside the actual structure that was built here. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really cool. Built interior and exterior. And I think for me, what's really interesting about that, and I told you about the shot from inside the pottery shop, is that I remember talking to John about the first movie um, and about how much was done maybe on a stage and how much was real. And I know that the only set in the original movie was the interior of Daniel's apartment. But the rest of it was all practical location. I think that's right, but, you know, and, I'll take uh, John's word for yeah, it. No, I, I yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I remember. And, I mean, look, I've been, of course, to all the places. Yeah. So <laughs> um, it makes sense. And I know talking to John, you know, he told me that his opinion was really the more real that you can put in a movie uh, the better. It makes it better for the actors. They can feed off of the place. So it's great. You know, you have Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita inside this place, and they're having to talk around trains going by. And I think that's a testament to John, you know, for hey, that, sure. That was his style of filmmaking, that I, as, as I saw it, which is why this was a little different, because we were quite a bit over at the Warner Ranch. Um, the interior of the dojo was built there. Miyagi's house, and we'll get to I guess. Yeah, well, another set that was built, not for this one, but for part two, was that in Hawaii, they built that whole village basically on the side of a lagoon. And like the bonsai shop here in Highland Park, they built the interiors inside. They shot inside those structures in Hawaii because you could look out the windows and see the lagoon, right? Mm -hmm. So that adds to convincing, you know, the audience that this is a real place. What was your experience working with John Avildsen? <laughs> I love working with John Avildsen. He was uh, he was a bright, communicative person. He, you know, we we were able to go look at stuff, and he he could say, "Not quite," or "I sort of like this," or "Can you do better?" I, you know, he 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 would talk to me about locations. It <sighs> things have changed a lot in my world since we made that movie. And the communication between the production uh, location manager and the creatives is is a little thinner now because of computers and and uh, cell phones and a million other things that take us away from each other to connect us. Speaking about how things have changed, I mean, when you made that movie, the first film, you actually got in a car with John and drove around and found Daniel's apartment building, right? The South Seas. The South Seas was found when, um, I won't say I didn't get it, but I didn't get it and find it in the valley. I've, that was one of those places where I had a couple of places in Hollywood that seemed like they were what he was looking for and he didn't like because they were in Hollywood and they looked like they were in Hollywood. Um, what does that mean? What is a building I mean, there were palm trees and it was like. a little more lush and the houses next door were a little more expensive and it just had a more built-up, prosperous look to it. Uh, we, uh, I, I just, I remember, you know, John saying... You know, I, I guess, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep looking in the valley this weekend. And John says, well, I'm free. I'll go with you. Something like that. And uh, and so we drove around pretty much. I think we were taking a shortcut to get back to some place that I thought might have it when we went down Santa Co. And you looked up and said, wait. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. It was there, you know. And I, it couldn't have been better, I don't think, you know. It was palm trees. It said the South Seas, and and yet it 
it was not in a classy area, had a huge vacant lot next to on one side, and I cannot remember what was on the other side. I think it was businesses, but I don't, I'm not yeah. really sure. Well, I know there are businesses yeah, there I think, today. Yeah, I think there yeah. were businesses then, too. Right, and it also had that pool, right, that you could take the water out Well, of, the pool right? was that not was empty whole... when we saw it. Right, of John, course. John emptied it out, tossed in some green algae and a deflated beach ball. and uh, So a really image. cool story, actually, I know about. So in the pool is a swan, uh, swan float, a blow-up like blow swan. Yeah, swan, yeah. And so I don't know if you know this, but he told me that that swan is actually the swan... That was in Jack Lemon's pool and Save the Tiger. Oh, no, I didn't know Which that. he directed, of course, too. <laughs> um, actually, the movie, like, starts on that swan floating in the pool and then tilts up to Jack Lemon's house. Um, so I always found that really funny. That was a little touch for him. Yeah. Not, I don't think for anyone else. Well, he was a really funny guy, too. I, rem- I mean, just from my perspective, you know, um, he was always very witty and... Uh, he had a joked a, around <laughs> with he had a me. Dry a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. Something I'm really interested in, in ter- with sequels and going back to locations that are essentially part of the iconography of the franchise. You know, you would assume that having the Karate Kid behind you that that would help you because it's the Karate Kid. But in a place in a in a in a case like the South Seas or something like that, does that hurt at all? In the sense when you come and say, hey, we want to come back. Do they want to charge you more money? It just, it, it, it certainly is a possibility. Yeah. I don't think that was the case with the Southeast. They hadn't had filming since I was there, and <laughs> I don't think they've had filming since. You, you really can't make that building anything else now, yeah. right? I mean, it's, <laughs> that's the Karate Kid yeah, building. I'm surprised I don't have a plaque out front. I know. Uh, and there was that, the vacant lot, which, uh, which added to the dinginess of of the uh, of the location added to the the fact that it wasn't in Hollywood. It was a big vacant lot next door. Right. Uh, ended up and it was not part of the original concept. Uh, when we were at the school, which was not far away, uh, and he said, but he wanted to shoot the night scene when they run to the fence at the school, which we had a fence at the school and we had a school. He wanted to shoot that next to the apartment building in the vacant lot. And I recall that was a little bit of a search too, but but they were they were cooperative once we got in touch. And now that vacant lot has houses on it. A little, it's, little it's amazing. Faux, faux Spanish yeah. condos. I mean, it's amazing that that lot stayed empty for so long, basically the last 30 plus years. And just two years ago, a bunch of houses were yeah, built I, I on there. Yeah, I met the developer at one point. Amazing. Said, That's my lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, the... South Sea's apartments on Satakoy and Reseda, um, it really is one of the anchors of the franchise, I'd say. And it's so much so that they actually return there for Cobra Kai, for the YouTube series. If you watched oh, Cobra I Kai? Oh, I didn't know. No, I haven't. I wonder if it's the same owners. I can remember when I... You know, they sold it a couple years ago. Oh, really? I, when I found them, uh, they were down in Fountain Valley. And, uh, and, and I told them that I wanted to shoot there. I think, I think we needed, with Miyagi and everything else, I mean, we needed like, you know, a couple of weeks in there. And uh, they couldn't believe it. They, were, they, they, di- they didn't take me seriously for quite a while because nobody had ever wanted to film there. I don't think anybody's filmed there since except for, like, now you say the... the yeah, city. they went back there yeah. for that. But it's yeah. almost like, right, it's the South Seas. It's almost like the Gamble House in Pasadena, you know, right? Once that's Doc Brown's house, how do you make it anything else? I mean, I you, you... Filming at the Gamble House really could can. never have been easy, so... Well, I no, I, I, it's not. <laughs> I know that for sure. But even just the exterior, you know, there are a couple of really 
to me, upon talking to you, there are a couple of really surprising builds that happened for this movie. Not only building Mr. Miyagi's little tree shop, and I don't know if a lot of Karate Kid fans know this because there's no DVD commentary for the third film. Um, one of the builds in part three was Miyagi's house. Totally. Which in the first and second films, it was a real house that was over in Canoga Park. Mm-hmm. You found that house, right? Yeah, it was one. It was one of those moments of divine inspiration. I got to tell you, I don't even know if that's what I was looking for that day. I think it, it, that house was close to the school that was used in the first one, and, and I may just have been going somewhere, uh, or taking a shortcut, or wondering what's here, but not necessarily scouting for Miyagi's house. Miyagi's house, in concept, was a build in a junkyard. And we were supposed to find a junkyard and build uh, a house in it, and then that would make the connection, you know, with the the old cars and train tracks or whatever we could Mm -hmm. find. And I scouted a lot of junkyards. Driving down the street, I look up, and there in the middle of this lot, and it was a double or a triple lot, um, all overgrown with a giant century plant next to the house, was a perfect... Asian Californian bungalow. It had it had tile roofs. It had clapboard siding. It was and it had a slight arch. I mean, it had an Asian look and a Californian look, and it was all by itself in the middle of a lot. Uh, <laughs> there's a scene in "It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World" where they finally discover the big W, and there's these angel voices yes. that you hear. I swear. <laughs> I swear to this day, I heard those voices when I saw that house. And I called the production designer, and I said, I found it. Come on over. And he said, bring me pictures. I said, that'll take time. Come on over. He said, bring me pictures. So I had to go. I think pictures were overnight at that time. I had to go get pictures. Maybe they were one hour. Get the pictures developed, paste them up, and take them down to the art department. Bill Cassidy looks at it and says, Oh, <laughs> and we went out and looked at it, and we built, and it was backwards. We the house was there, and we built the junkyard. Amazing. But what happened? So what happened between well, part two the, and part the, three? The house, like, here's more story. Oh, okay. Uh, the um, the house was for sale. <laughs> uh, it was also occupied by a very mysterious Peruvian exchange student who had a chemistry lab in the house, and I never got the full story on him or anything. He wanted nothing to do with me. I had to find the owner. She was fine with the money and said she would deal with him, and she did. He wasn't there, nor was the chemistry lab when we when we came to shoot. Uh, but I hadn't been able to get inside the house for like a week after we actually selected it. And uh, so the house was for sale, and it was for sale, for, my memory serves me, under $300,000 for the house and whatever property went to it. Some of the property that I saw was vacant did not actually belong to the house. I had to make a, a separate deal for the uh, I'm going to say the north side, but it could have been the south side uh, of the uh, of the junkyard. And so, as as we're getting close to the end of the movie, I suggested to the producer, "This this place is for sale. It's for sale for under three hundred thousand dollars. I know you've got sequels in mind. You should buy it and come back for your sequels. You can rent it in the meantime, or let it sit, or whatever you want to do." And remember, Jerry saying to me, "Richard, that's not how we spend money on movies." Jerry Weintraub. Jerry right? Weintraub. Yeah, I, I took I, I said it directly to him. So, okay, then it's not how you do it. So um, the big build at Miyagi's house was the backyard, the garden, you know, with the, uh, with the 
paint off, mm-hmm. paint off, wax on, wax off, all of that. Paint all the that, fence, wax on, wax off. All right. of that took place in something that we built. We built it with stones and grass and palm trees, and, you know, it was a big build. And after the first movie, they took it all out, except for the stones, which I understand stayed as part of the condominium development next door. But um, we, uh, and we were gone. So when it came time to um, do Karate Kid 2, they had to re-rent the house, and I wasn't part of that, and they had to rebuild the garden, which I'm sure was expensive. Right, because in part and two, he comes back and hammers the nails in, so they do go in the back yeah, of no, the house, that's they're, right. Yeah, they're there. They had to rebuild the garden, I know. I'd heard the stories, and I thought, well, they should have listened to me. <laughs> and, then, um, and then for part three, it had been torn down. and they The put entire house, house was gone. Everything was gone, and Miyagi's <laughs> house figured in part three. And they had to build it, and they needed some place to build it. They built it on the on the ranch at Warner Brothers. They built the whole thing, top to bottom. Some walls wilded, but mostly it was a, a structure, and with a garden in the back. And uh, and I'm, I'm, I have no idea because I don't do construction. But I'll, if it was a million, if it was less than a million dollars, I'd really be surprised, you know. And uh, but. That was like he said. That's not how movies spend their money. He wasn't uh, wasn't going to sit on a piece of real estate until yeah. he had a sequel. That could be a tourist attraction today or something. Yeah, uh, could be, yeah. Oh my goodness! Um, I'm sure the pieces are stacked and stored somewhere. Oh my so, gosh! Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. When you first had told me that that Miyagi's house was recreated on the Warner Ranch, when you look at it. You can see in the background like a big building. The wrong building. Yeah, they got a tree in front of it. But yeah, some trees. Still, yeah. They covered it with some trees, yeah. but it's like. I don't think people are taking those notes. Look, I didn't notice. Yeah. I I didn't notice it probably forever. I thought it was a pretty darn you know? good reproduction. No, it was good. Yeah. And then you know, again, if you if you ever watch Cobra Kai, they rebuilt the house, but in Georgia, I think, but they rebuilt <laughs> it again. So it's been rebuilt a couple of times now, which is interesting. At the beginning of the Karate Kid Part Three, we see a washed-up John Kreese walking uh, in front of a bunch of decaying storefronts. And again, this goes to that kind of that, uh, aesthetic that we were talking about, um, walking up in front of these storefronts, there's homeless people on the ground, on the sidewalk, uh, on Lancashire Boulevard. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, we shot that there. Right. So he approaches the, the Cobra Kai dojo in North Hollywood. What was that area like when you did the Karate Kid films? Well, it wasn't run down. Okay. It, it wasn't full of homeless people or anything like it. It was, it was uh, you know, there was a, a very good Indian restaurant right next door, one of my favorites since gone. And uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was an arts district in a sense, but nothing like it, you know, not a dedicated arts district like it is today. Um, and again, there wasn't, homelessness was much less of a problem in the Valley back then. In the first film, though, you filmed inside. Yes. But part three, you did not. It was the Zhang Kong Taekwondo. Zhang Kong had one on Wilshire Boulevard and one in, on Lancashire in North Hollywood. And it was run by a brilliant, brilliant karate master called Ken Nagayama. And Ken liked the idea, and he sold it to Zhang Kong. And uh, we ended up shooting there. I closed him down for a few days in order to film there. Was it still that when you went back? Was it still the, a dojo when you were there I for part three? I believe it still is a dojo, but I don't know what it looks like inside anymore. But I mean, when you did part three. Part, yeah, but we didn't. But part three was a build. I know. And I'm just wondering if it was the same. I can't answer that. Okay. I think the idea was for some reason they wanted to build, and maybe uh, maybe it wasn't available. Maybe it was too expensive. I, I don't really know. Y- you did mention to me briefly just the other day, though, that that location just in general, was a little problematic. 
getting a movie company into that location was difficult. Parking, parking was a, a problem when Karate Kid won, and it was a serious problem on Karate Kid Three. And I think you know we would have we would we would have ended up the base camp everything else would have ended up a long way from location. Not that they aren't all now. Back then, it seemed like, oh, God, the base camps could be a mile and a half away. That's terrible. Now, I've been three miles right. away sometimes. So, <laughs> Let's talk about the Ennis House. This is Frank Lloyd Wright's 1924, one of his famous block houses it's, here it's, in L.A. It is, and it's very visible from Hollywood. So now it's, it's a famous Frank Lloyd Wright house. And, of course, it's often used for the bad guy's house, right? I mean, the bad guy, the villain's often get the cool architecture it's usually said it's right? it's brooding yes <laughs> it is a brooding piece of architecture and it was in a state of decay at the time we filmed there much worse than anybody realized i had to be really careful of all of that concrete along the edge of anything because water had been sitting on it for years and it was decaying it was starting to fall apart and uh and the guy that ran it uh somebody brown because he called it the ennis brown house because he owned right. it at the time i don't think it's called the ennis brown house anymore when you look at that place, you can imagine human sacrifices taking place on the parapet. So giving it to a bad guy is, uh, it makes plenty of sense. John wanted it. I didn't have to look for it. He said I, he knew it and he wanted it. We looked at other places, but it was his idea and that's where we went. Uh, one location you went to, which was nowhere near the valley, nowhere near Los Angeles, uh, and this was what is in the movie referred to as Devil's Cauldron. Actually, it, if that, is it referred to that in the movie? I, because think, I don't think it had that name at the time. No, I think it's actually called Devil's Basin. Oh, okay. At least on Google Maps, it says Devil's Basin yeah. next to it. Um, but in the movie, Miyagi calls it Devil's Cauldron. I, ah, well, um, maybe he knew something I didn't. I, no, I, I, had, I did not find that location. Uh, we were look, I had places uh, on, on cliffs down in, uh, in Palos Verdes with a great view of the ocean and a terrible cliff to climb down and footpaths and it would have been that would have been difficult doing those scenes in that place john wanted something really striking um, and this is sorry to remember but this is for the scenes obviously where miyagi has planted his bonsai tree down the side yes of the yeah, basin yeah and and um so had john had an assistant and i think it was john's money they he rented him a helicopter and sent him up the coast I had heard about it. I thought, well, I guess, great, if you find something. And he found something. <laughs> I think he found it. He saw it. Maybe he knew where he was going. I don't know. I, I, I certainly didn't have any permission to take that film to That Mendocino. far away, yeah. Yeah, and, and I wasn't scouting the area. Uh, and John either knew about it or decided to look for something out there. And uh, the, so the, uh, his assistant sees the Devil's Cauldron from the air and lands on the property to take a closer <laughs> look, incurring the wrath of the caretaker of the property, who I understand wasn't there, came out with a shotgun, let a couple rounds go off into the air to let him know he was trespassing. And uh, in the end, uh, I made peace with the caretaker and because John really wanted that place, and somehow he got the studio to go for it. And uh, and the owner turned out to be Chris Christopherson. Oh, whoa. And... <laughs> And uh, we, but getting into that location was a trick. We had to go to the Coastal Commission, and I remember the producer and I uh, going to San Francisco to the Coastal Commission's offices, as well dressed as we could manage, with all kinds of documentation about the kind of equipment we wanted to bring out there. We wanted to bring a crane out there, a I don't know how many ton uh, crane to to 
to provide an elevator to the base and up and down to get people in and out without risking their lives. And uh, that had to go by studio safety. I mean, there, was in, there were all kinds of meetings over this. The Coastal Commission originally... Um, I think they thought they, there was some money to coming from it. When it turned out there wasn't, they just declared it de minimis, a word I learned then and have never forgotten, which means no impact, and uh, and that we could we could uh, we could go out there with what we'd presented to them. We were not bringing the company out. There was really no place to put the trucks. There was Highway One was a two lane highway, and everything else was a dirt road off that two lane highway, and and dirt. Uh, that unpacked, un, you know, nothing that was suitable for a for a base camp, and we had to get the trucks closed. So, I, you know, I figure, well, what, it can't hurt to ask. I went to Caltrans and said, what I'd like to do is close a lane of Pacific Coast Highway for maybe 500 feet in order to get my trucks in, and then and have Highway Patrol flag traffic around just as if you had a construction crew in one lane. And uh, everybody thought I was crazy, and they went for it. So we every Amazing. morning we we pull the trucks up into this closure, <laughs> and Highway Patrol would start flagging. It was just daytime shots. Start flagging intermittent traffic. There wasn't a lot of traffic in that section of Pacific Coast Highway, around, and we'd shoot. And then at the end of the day, we'd pack all the trucks, drive away turn them around i remember being told it was going to be a real problem somehow they found a place to turn them around and went back to the hotel hung out there and the next day we drove down it probably took a half an hour 45 minutes of of overtime to get the trucks in at the beginning of the day and an hour to get them out do you recall i mean what sort of safety protocols have to go into like filming around this you know i mean you're on a cliff yeah well nobody got near the cliff without an escort there was that we, we created a uh, out of out of the old landing strip uh, aluminum uh, rollout stuff we put a we put that down and then we put plywood i think on top of her maybe it was under it and we rolled the crane out and the crane went into place and stayed it was back from the edge so you couldn't see it once it was taken once the arm went away and uh, and then, as I recall, crewmen people came out along that pathway that was created for the crane, and were and were lowered in. I mean, if there was a camera position on the edge, somebody went with them to make sure that it was safe. Uh, it was it was it was touchy. And obviously, all the close-ups, planting the tree, all that's a set, right? I mean, that's I all. I don't think so. What? Well, th- think, they have to I be the close-ups the, the, of... The, the, the reference was to a movie called Gorillas in the Mist. Okay. Which was all handheld, yeah, totally looks natural like. light in a similar, you know, a, a, a natural wild environment. And it was shot there. I don't, I have no recollection of any cliff sets being built. If I could be corrected because I don't know I was there when the okay. sets are built, but as far as I know, everything was it just see, it everything seemed, that looks like it was shot at that location. Well, there certainly are wide shot. shots of the climbers going down. When it cuts though to the close-ups, where it's actually Ralph and Pat, you know, planting the bonsai tree, it has a little bit of a artificial really? look I'll, to I'd it. I have to look at I, it's it almost, may be that we did it there in some safer oh, okay. environment. It's almost more um saturated looking than the than the wider shots of the maybe, of the film. Maybe they're inserts that were shot. Yeah, later. maybe. I, I, don't I don't know. Now do the Karate Kid films stand out in your career for any particular reason? Sure. Or reasons? I mean the Karate Kid the first Karate Kid stands out big. I mean I had I was 
pretty new. I hadn't done that many movies. And um, I had uh, connected with Columbia on a, another project and two other projects, I think. And, uh, and I, I was like just delighted to be there. Uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a great experience. It was real filmmaking by my current definition. And, uh, and you know, we drove around in the van, production designer, director of photography, director, producer, line producer, whatever, sat around. And John, John had his own converted van with a bed in the back if you wanted to lie down. And we, we went places in that. There, was, there were cell phones but they were uh, they were the size of small handbags, and John had one, and uh, Cliff Cliffy, the first AD, had one. I don't think anybody else had a cell phone. So, what's happened to that kind of an experience since cell phones is everybody's on the phone, nobody talks to each other, and so you don't get to know anybody, and you don't really know what's on their mind. All you know is what they've put into writing and what you. you know. uh, so it was it was a more intimate experience in filmmaking the first one. By the third. That had changed not significantly. Now, it's night and day. You you know you get in a van with people, they never they don't even say hello to you. You're lucky if they get out and look at the location. Now on December fifth, twenty fourteen, you were part of a ceremony that happened at Van Nuys City Hall, uh, where the LA City Council honored the Karate Kid for quote its lasting cultural and social impact in the United States and around the world. How does it feel knowing that your contributions to the Karate Kid franchise are known the world over? Well, I don't know if they're known as my contributions, but they're definitely, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's obviously a film that's re- reached iconic status. Right. And, uh, and people are glad to hear that I worked on it when I tell them, which isn't that often anymore. It, doesn't, it seems going that far back sometimes is counterproductive. Yeah, but however, this is something yeah. I'm going to add, um, okay. at least from my perspective. And this is why I like talking to location professionals, right? So you told me about finding Mr. Miyagi's house. That house is in the movie. It was recreated. And it was recreated again for something that's happening now off of something that you found. Yep. So I'm pretty pleased about that's it. That's important. I, mean, I get more phone calls about that location than I do about anything else I've done. People call up and say, can you take us there? I say, well, I, not now. So <laughs> I know? just want to make that clear. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> I just want to make that clear that, yes, okay, people may not say, oh, Richard Davis Jr., you know, found the house. But that's important, you know, and I like to make people aware of yeah. of those well, things I, I, um well i i really want to thank you richard for coming out today um i know it was last minute but there was really something like calling to me to do something on the karate kid part three you know and whether or not fans like it uh it is part of a lasting legacy that that is john avildsen's um you know now everything is about cobra kai you know but i like to look back and think about so many of those things that are iconic, that are continued on into Cobra Kai, are because of, of John uh, and his, his contributions to this franchise. Well, like I say, I think the first one was, you know, was the worthy inheritor of Rocky and John's work. I'm not that aware of the second one. I've seen it, but I don't call it the third one. It didn't hold me. I, I, I mean, I was glad to work on it. I was glad to find locations. I was glad to see John again. Um, and, uh, you know, we did, we did our best and we made a movie. You know, it's always a pleasure to talk about your career and locations. Uh, and just so everybody knows, uh, Richard's going to be joining me on September 15th at the Valley Relics Museum at the Van Nuys Airport when I'll be moderating a panel about filming in the Valley. 
Um, the panel will also be recorded for an episode of this podcast. Tickets are going to be on sale for um, my Valley Film Tour, uh, and you can get them there at the event, or in the meantime, they're on sale at myvalleypass.com. Uh, you can join me on my Valley Tours, Pasadena Tours. I now do a tour of the Langham Huntington Hotel in Pasadena. Um, lots of fun. Tickets are also on sale for all of those at myvalleypass.com. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at On Location with Jared Cowan, on Twitter at On Location PC, and on Instagram at On Location Podcast. Thanks again, Richard, for helping me yet again relive parts of my childhood. And thanks to you all for joining us on location. See you next time.